Hey everyone, welcome to episode 9 of Toast and Topics. Before we get started on today's topic, we wanted to remind our audience to please take a moment to rate us or provide a review on the podcasting platform that you're listening to this on because they help more people find our podcast. We really hope you've been enjoying our episodes thus far. In the spirit of current events, we wanted to use the time in this episode to analyze the tragic events currently unfolding in Israel and Gaza. And although we're going to look at this primarily through an economic and security lens, we want to start by acknowledging the tragic human aspect that this conflict has taken on, as well as all the people who might be directly or indirectly impacted by the war. Absolutely. I second that. Um, let's start by just understanding what's happening in the region. On October 7th, 2023, Hamas, which governs the Palestinian coastal enclave of Gaza, launched a surprise attack into Israel that resulted in the massacre of over 1,000 Israelis and the abduction of hundreds. Um, in the weeks since, Israel has retaliated for these attacks with a bombing campaign against Gaza, and at the time of this recording is sending its ground forces directly into the Gaza Strip. Every hour, it seems that news is breaking of a rocket attack, a border dispute, or a new diplomatic crisis. And the amount of information coming from the region right now can seem overwhelming as the situation continues to develop. And so we wanted to take some time in this episode to distill what's going on at the present moment and discuss some of the key themes that might affect this conflict in the weeks and potentially months ahead. So Ben, I know your comparative advantage is in history, so I think it would be helpful if you could give us some background on this conflict. That's a tall order, Sachin, but I'll do my best. So to take a step back, there were many Jews and Arabs living in what is now Israeli territory when Israel was founded in 1948. And the United Nations attempted to partition the region into a Jewish-Israeli section and an Arab Palestinian section at that time. And that partition meant that many communities would need to be relocated from one of these territories to the other. And that resulted in a war, actually, between Israel on the one side and the Arab states bordering it, like Jordan, Egypt, and Syria on the other. And Israel won that war. As a result of that, many Palestinian communities were displaced onto the periphery of Israeli territory where they have really remained since. That displacement has been at the heart of the conflict between Israel and Palestine over the past half century. In the wars and insurgencies that have happened since Israel's founding, Israel has generally gained the upper hand and has gradually acquired territory extending well beyond the borders set for it in 1948. And Israel today is a highly prosperous society. Um, it has a per capita income on par with most Western countries, a robust innovation ecosystem, and among the best military capabilities in the world. The Palestinian territories, meanwhile, never really recovered from their initial defeat at the time of Israel's founding. And adding to that, they have had trouble becoming politically unified with Hamas controlling Gaza and the Palestinian Authority controlling the West Bank. One important point to note here is that these groups and the attacks that they have committed, or really that Hamas has committed, are not necessarily representative of all Palestinians. Roughly half of Gaza's population are 
children, and only something like a third of Gaza's population was even eligible to vote when Hamas was first voted into power in 2006, and Hamas has canceled all elections in Gaza since that point. Uh, but nonetheless, living standards remain low in Gaza, and there is a pretty palpable resentment against Israel there. Sources suggest that Hamas had been planning this attack for two years and that they wanted to achieve a few related objectives. The first is signaling their opposition to further Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Second is stalling the normalization of Israeli relations with other Arab countries like Saudi Arabia. And third is putting the spotlight back on the dire situation of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. These attacks, of course, have placed significant pressure on Israel to retaliate. Over 1,500 Israelis have died in the attacks thus far, um, and for a country with a population of 9 million, that is tremendously deadly. Um, as a share of its population, some 15 times more Israelis died in the attacks than Americans did during 9-11. That's all helpful to you know put in perspective, Sachin. Thank you. Um, and so I think that it's now worth discussing what Israel's response to the attacks by Hamas has been and what we can expect in the weeks ahead. Yeah, so the United Nations has already called for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, pushing for Hamas to, quote, immediately and unconditionally release those that it's holding captive, as well as urging Israel to allow unrestricted access of essential basic supplies to Gaza. However, the consensus among Middle East experts is that the conflict is likely to enter a more destructive phase with an uncertain outcome. Yeah, there is really widespread pessimism right now about the prospects of a near-term de-escalation in the violence between Israel and Hamas, with civilians unfortunately expected to bear much of the brunt of that fighting. The human cost of this conflict is a grave concern to humanitarian organizations and NGOs, of course, since Israel using this much military power in one of the most densely populated portions of the world, Gaza, is undoubtedly going to result in lots of collateral damage. Um, so there are a couple of scenarios that experts think could play out here, and all of these revolve around the prospect of Israel sending its ground forces into Gaza to eliminate Hamas, which, as we discussed earlier, seems to have already happened. So, first of all, the you know main scenario that we're kind of considering here would be that Israel sends its ground forces into Gaza and succeeds in its mission to eliminate Hamas. But really the big question here is that if Israel successfully removes Hamas leadership, then what exactly is Hamas going to be replaced with? One option would be to replace Hamas with representatives from the Palestinian Authority, which controls the West Bank. But the Palestinian Authority leader, Mahmoud Abbas, has low levels of popularity in the Gaza Strip, mainly due to the perception of corruption. And it's also unlikely that he would want to be seen as assuming control of the Gaza Strip in collaboration with Israel. And so I'm not sure if it's likely that uh, the Palestinian Authority is going to collaborate in any way here. Um, it's also probably unlikely that other Arab nations would want to step in as peacekeepers in Gaza. Um, and so without any clear group to 
take power in Gaza after Hamas is removed, Israel might be stuck there, and that would be a tremendously costly occupation. But it's really important to note here that if Israel goes into Gaza, it's unlikely that the rest of the Middle East will remain silent. And so the second scenario that we have to consider here is that this conflict could become a broader regional war involving Western countries as well as Middle Eastern allies of um, the United States and also of Hamas. So on face, the Middle East actually looks safer for Israel now than it has at many points in its history. For example, Egypt and Jordan have peace agreements with Israel, and the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco also signed peace agreements with Israel at the Abraham Accords in 2020. But the biggest issue here by far is Iran, which operates a vast network of troops and proxies in the Middle East that extends all the way to Lebanon. For example, the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah is widely recognized as an Iranian proxy and is also fervently anti-Israel. In fact, they fought a war with the Israelis in 2006, and they also have a far larger arsenal of weapons and, importantly, rockets than Hamas does. Um, already, there have been skirmishes between Israel and Hezbollah on Israel's northern border, and Israel has evacuated hundreds of thousands of people from this northern portion of the country in anticipation of a conflict. And so as Israel goes into Gaza, there is a real risk that Hezbollah could escalate this into a wider conflict with Israel, either because they want to be seen as assisting the Palestinian cause or because Iran pushes them to do so. And that's exactly why the United States and the West more broadly might get involved here. Um, for example, the United States has deployed two carrier strike groups to the eastern Mediterranean already, and that is really meant to signal to Iran and Hezbollah that getting involved in this conflict could be very costly. Um, by that same token, the United States has launched airstrikes against Iranian bases in Syria, and the Iranians have also attacked U.S. bases in Iraq. And so there is really this scary potential here for this conflict to get quite a lot larger than it already is. Yeah, thanks for that, Ben. That's all really helpful. Um, and so before we wrap up, I think we should conclude by talking about the global economic ramifications of this war. Um, and at the IMF's annual meeting in Morocco earlier this month, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen had told Bloomberg News that it is, quote, critically important that the conflict not spread, noting that there would be severe global economic consequences should other regions get involved, as you had highlighted above. Um, so on a global scale, the bulk of the attention right now is on energy prices. In the scenario of U.S. and Iranian involvement, oil prices are projected to increase to as high as $150 per barrel, which would hamper global growth and create substantial challenges in the fight against inflation. This outcome could reduce U.S. inflation-adjusted GDP over a year-long period by about 1.2% which amounts to $500 billion in lost production. This could also mean gasoline at $5 a gallon, which would obviously reduce economic activity and the overall capacity for consumers to spend in the U.S. Um, and with us already fighting against persistently high inflation and a historic rise in interest rates, 
the vulnerability and uncertainty surrounding this war puts us at greater risk of being pushed into a recession uh, should things continue to escalate. Looking at this more regionally, there are also a few significant challenges and implications that I think are worth discussing. First is employment. Um, since the start of the war, Israel's armed forces have mobilized almost 8% of the country's workforce. And many of Israel's military recruits happen to be also the most productive workers in the region as well. There was a study that was recently published by Startup Nation, which is an Israeli charity, that found that a tenth of tech workers have been called to fight the war. And being one of Israel's largest industries, this will have serious implications on its growth. The second is a reduction in private consumption. With all this uncertainty and fear and continued unrest in the region, um, people have changed their consumption habits by staying at home, and understandably so. This means that restaurants, shopping malls, and broader tourism in the region has screeched to a grinding halt, and that's contributed to a nearly 5% depreciation of the Israeli shekel since the start of October. And it's prompted the Israeli central bank to sell 30 billion U.S. dollars in FX reserves to prop up the region's local currency. And finally, it's worth talking about the fiscal costs of the war. Um, despite aid from the U.S. and other allies, the longer that this conflict continues, the more that Israel's debt and fiscal deficit will grow. In 2024, Israel's primary deficit is forecasted to jump from 3% of GDP to almost 8% as the country mobilizes resources and ammunition towards the war. Um, and in a world with the highest interest rates in over a decade, this obviously will have serious implications for the country's debt sustainability. For Gaza, the implications are, of course, much graver, um, with airstrikes already having destroyed much of Gaza's infrastructure um, and with great uncertainty over who will actually hold the power to govern the region after this conflict comes to an end. Um, the economic picture looks bleak. Thanks for that analysis, Sachin. And we really did have a lot to unpack here, but I'm glad that we did, given all that has unfolded in the region. Um, of course, we'll have to continue to stay close to this conflict in the coming weeks as things continue to evolve, both on the ground and economically. And so stay tuned for that. Absolutely. And our next episode of Toast and Topics will be a special edition where we'll have our first guest on the show, John Budish, who's a friend of mine and a mentor. Um, and he'll be talking about retirement savings and the importance of starting early. I promise you that you won't want to miss it. So we will catch you then. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Toast and Topics. If you like what you heard, Please rate and follow us on a podcast platform of your choice, like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And you can stay tuned for updates on the podcast by following us on social media platforms like LinkedIn and Instagram. Until next time.